So thank you very much for the invitation of coming along today. Um, I spent, before I was on the Migration Advisory Committee, I spent eight years on the Competition Commission. And um, my day job is market analysis and, and business strategy. And so it was quite interesting to spend time on the MAC, where the economics is labour market economics, and most of the other members of the committee are labour market economists. And I found that it was a very different way of thinking about the way firms take decisions than the one that I had become used to in my own applied work. And so that's really what I'm going to talk about today, that if we want to understand properly migration movements, you, the, the demand and supply for labour across borders, you can't do that with thinking about the whole of the firm's decision problem and, and the way that businesses think strategically. And actually, conventional economic models don't reflect current business practice very well. They have missed out on the phenomenon of what's called unbundling of supply chains in, in globalisation. And the conventional production function approach is, is too static and doesn't capture the way firms actually <coughs> think about this. So migration is one aspect of firms' decision making. So that's the broad theme. And um, I'm not an academic, so you'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to present equations in a formal model. It's a, a not very entertaining to listen to, especially if you're not an economist yourself. So this is about as technical as it gets, and I'm not going to talk about the diagram. This is just an illustration from the very first MAC report in 2008 of the approach to methodology. And it's a very familiar comparative statics diagram if you are an economist. A firm faces a production function, the technology is given, it uh, looks at the real return and the productivity of the different factors, capital and labour conventionally, and you can make that more sophisticated by considering different types of labour, high, medium, low skill. And um, factors are, are paid their marginal product, so there's a derived labour demand from that optimisation problem, and then at any given point in time there's a labour demand from supply curve, and you consider how that changes over time using these very, very conventional comparative static diagrams. And it's the default for thinking about uh, labour demand and labour supply in economics. So that was how we started in the MAC. And obviously, over time, our thinking became more sophisticated. But this, was, this, is, this is a starting point any economist has. This is the classic optimization problem. And obviously, we realised right at the start that there were different kinds of labour shortage. One is the pure cyclical shortage because demand is high. And if you remember those days back in 2007, we had a boom. <laughs> it seems a very long time ago in a different world now. But there were definitely sectors of the economy where there were cyclical shortages of labour. So catering would be a really good example of hospitality. And a lot of employers were using migrants because they could, and they didn't have to increase real wages to meet the <coughs> increased demand for their products and services. So there was a pure cyclical shortage. Then there was the issue of longer-term shortages because it takes time to train workers to do certain tasks. And the canonical example is engineering, where we know that in the UK education system, maths education in schools, number of people going into engineering, um, means that that industry faces a pretty permanent labour shortage, which has, to a large extent, been filled by immigrant engineers. And if you, in that case, were to block off the supply of immigrants, there'd be a, a gap of, well, at least five and maybe longer, maybe more years, before the um, demand for engineers could be met in any other way by training native workers. 
So there's that sort of longer-term frictional shortage. Then there's kind of skill shortage that came about because in <coughs> some sectors of the economy there are budget constraints because they're publicly funded. And employers don't want to raise wages because they then can't meet their demand. So nurses and healthcare workers are the examples here. And employers didn't really ha have a choice in those, in those sectors. So they had long-term skill shortages too. And then finally, there's a category that we thought about as permanent shortage because the employers were operating in global labour markets. If you want to um, be the best in the world, if you're exporting your products and services around the world, you want to have your pick of the best possible employees in the world. And the examples given there are um, lawyers and finance, and you might also want market-specific knowledge that they have, they've been trained in a different legal system, or they understand um, business culture if you're trying to sell financial products. Uh, you want to give your own people experience in overseas markets. So in certain sectors, there are kind of permanent skill shortages because it's global. And actually, it's, uh, although it's law and finance, there are, um, the example picked up in the papers was ballet dancers. We've got world-class ballet companies in the UK. Uh, they're trained in British uh, ballet schools, dance schools, and um, those ballet companies want to employ the best possible people, because actually they're big exporters, both to tourists in the UK and uh, but through tours overseas. And that was about as far as we went initially, thinking about this, this broad category of, of global permanent skill shortage. But that didn't fit into this kind of model very easily, because the top-down indicators that you use to flag up shortages from this kind of conceptual framework, the things like vacancy ratios or how fast uh, real wages are rising, just don't apply in that, in that category of global shortage. So as well as what we call top-down indicators, we looked at bottom-up indicators, which meant going to employers and asking them could they provide any systematic evidence that they found it hard to fill the jobs that they had from people in the UK. It involved going and talking to a lot of businesses and listening to what they said about how they made those choices. And as I said, I spent um, eight years on the Competition Commission too, doing a lot of talking to businesses in different categories of the economy. And the stories were consistent even going back to 2001. Um, so for example, a company that made isotope ratio mass spectrometers, which is only one form of mass spectrometry and it's extremely specialised, and there are only three places in the world that make these machines, one of which happened to be outside Manchester. Very few academic specialists who could do the work. And they, they would definitely want to fish in a global labour pool to get anybody who could fill the jobs in the firm. So thinking about how businesses actually make the choices takes you to a very different kind of framework than this one. And I wanted to talk a bit about Dyson which is a really interesting company. Obviously, um, we all know the hand dryers that they've started to put in washrooms and vacuum cleaners in the washing machines. So they're innovative. They put a lot of emphasis on research and development, um, high rate of investment, and they make a big deal about being a British company. It was founded in 1993 by James Dyson. It's privately held, so there's not very much information about it in the public domain. And in 2002, they caused headlines by announcing that they were going to move a lot of their production to Malaysia. And it was widely assumed, and I think it still is widely assumed, that the reason for that 
was to cut costs because that was what manufacturers were doing. They were offshoring a lot of their manufacturing because it's so much cheaper to hire labour in the Far East. But Dyson never said, we're doing this to cut costs. And actually, it doesn't add up for them because their products are not cheap. And they sell on quality and design and innovation. They don't sell on having low prices. And what they said was, our suppliers are based in the Far East. A lack of supply infrastructure makes assembling things like consumer electronics difficult in the UK. And our markets are there too. And they made a big uh, deal about keeping their R&D function in Wiltshire, where the company was set up. So they would um, <coughs> offshore the manufacturing of initially just the vacuum cleaners and later the washing machines. And um, the reason for that was supply chain, but they would continue to keep the R&D work, the, the value-added, the high-tech work in the UK. And as a result, they started to import the products that had previously been manufactured here in this country. This is their Malaysian factory, and um, it looks very smart as well. But also, at the same time, and not mentioned nearly so much in the news, was that they opened a plant in Singapore as well. And that had 200 employees, of whom only 13 were production line employees. They had uh, apparently 50 robots on the line, which they boasted about in the local papers. So, and it looks pretty automated. This is a company picture. I haven't been to the plant, so it looks um, pretty automated. And the other employees of the 200 were in R&D. And they said to the local press, the facility in Singapore will give Dyson greater control over intellectual property and production processes and sits at the heart of our supply chains. Scroll forward to 2008, and they cut their R&D staff in the UK by a third, 220, according to the local papers at the time. And I'm, I'm citing newspaper reports because as a privately held company, there's none of this detail available through company's house reports. And um, they're actually extraordinarily uninformative. There's almost no information on the company website. Anyway, so it seems that they now have 120 R&D staff in the UK, almost 200 R&D staff in Singapore, and a small number in Malaysia as well, and the bulk of their manufacturing in Malaysia and Singapore. And they, one of the sacked engineers said, we were told it was not about money or the current economic climate, because remember this was um, after the crash had begun, uh, but putting resources more effectively in more appropriate areas. And then in 2009, Malaysia expanded with its own R&D centre with 400 engineers. And the local press were told, Dyson Malaysia will focus on staff development as it expands its R&D role here, including sending its Malaysian engineers to, acquire, to, UK, to the UK headquarters to acquire the necessary exposure and training. So we have this company that is seen as a, a classic British manufacturing success story. And James Dyson puts a lot of money into um, design and engineering education in the UK compared to other en engineering employers, uh, in the consumer goods market anyway. Um, he has commented on skills and migration too. He said, I'll put this quote up. Um, you can read it. But he said, it's essentially, we're taking the students from overseas, we train them here, and then we send them back overseas. And I think the implication is, we, Dyson, then have to locate our R&D facilities overseas mm. to find the number of engineers that we want to do the R&D for us. 
So um, James Lyson does put a lot of emphasis on education and training in the UK. But if you look at the company, it doesn't look very much like a UK company at all. Almost all its products are imported, and um, a majority of its staff are now based in Asia. It's very hard to get definitive figures from the press reports about how many are still employed in the UK, and I think it's, it's definitely gone up from the 120 again. So these are the kind of issues that get talked about. The wages, which everybody assumes is the case, but the company has never mentioned as a factor, and it doesn't seem plausible that it would be a key factor for them. Um, UK skill shortages, but importantly, supply chains, access to markets, and how do you do your R&D, and where do you do that? And I think these last three have evidently been much more important since the mid-2000s. Now, this isn't representative, this is one company, and I chose it because it's, um, it tells the story about the way companies think about these decisions in, in quite an interesting way, and it's, it's very high profile. I think, actually, you'd find a lot of variation between different companies about how do they approach what they think of as the important strategic issues. In food processing, for example, the costs would be an absolutely fundamental issue, and they are trying to decide what's the cheapest way to produce. Consumers um, are very focused on, on price. Um, is it going to be automation? Is it going to be using I immigrant labour? Is it going to be importing labour? And, and they're very, so they're very cost-focused. If you look at the legal services or the financial services, it will be um, different factors entirely. It will be completely about either market access or access to skills and where can you find the skills that you need. And if you can't get them as immigrants, does that mean that you have to go someplace else and locate someplace else? And I think there are definitely financial services companies that if they can't fill those jobs in the UK will relocate and Standard Chartered or HSBC might be examples of that. In other sectors, completely different. So textiles and clothing, which we think of as being <coughs> cost-driven because of the high-street examples like Primark or H&M or Zara, actually there's a very high-end clothing market too, which is completely different. And logistics are almost as important as costs in clothing because we want to get the product uh, changed frequently into the stores with a rapid turnaround and delivered <coughs> in um, the right kind of packaging so that it can easily be put out on the shelves. So how, how does one think systematically about the way companies are taking these strategic decisions when the issues facing them are different and they'll be very different from sector to sector? And the conventional economic production function model really doesn't help you do this. It really doesn't help understand the kinds of choices that companies are making that you start to get a sense of when you go around and talk to lots of them. And, and um, companies never, ever talk about their decisions in the way that economists model their decisions. So the conventional approach doesn't help. We've got a lot of technical change that has completely transformed the possibilities for um, businesses in making their choices about which inputs to use and where to locate them. And as a result, there's been this global unbundling of um, supply chains. So the supply chain issues that Dyson talked about have become feasible but also absolutely fundamental to firms' competitive advantage. And trying to get that right will be key to how well you succeed against your competitors. And businesses are thinking about multiple and um, related strategic choices that will make all the difference between 
success and failure. And that is, are you, how much are you automating? Um, what's the location of the labour that you're using? What's the skill level of the labour that you're using? We need to think about these simultaneously. Now, there is, in the economics literature, just in the last few years, a different approach that I think is really fruitful. And some of you probably know about this already. And that's the, um, the trade and tasks, or the tasks approach to um, the firm's decision. And there have been kind of three sets of literature about this. One looking at trade, which I'll talk about first. One looking at the offshoring decision and, uh, versus the native labour decision. And one looking at uh, labour markets per se. I'll talk about them a little bit in turn and then go on to say that I think one of the research challenges in economics is combining these together and a, w a way of approaching that that might be, um, might be feasible. This literature, I cite one paper by Richard Baldwin, who's done a lot of the work on this. It really started with a paper in 2008 um, by Grossman and Rossi Hansberg, the, the trade, and, trade and tasks approach. And it's really a way of modelling this unbundling of supply chains that has been the distinctive feature of globalisation since around 1980 and that differs from earlier eras of globalisation. There's a basic trade-off between forces that keep all your, all your supply chain activity in one location, the agglomeration forces, and those that make it uh, more effective to relocate it halfway around the world. And the two different types of technology play into that trade-off. And one is about um, technologies like computer-aided manufacturing, which increase the, uh, which reduce the gains to specialisation. And the other are the information technologies that make it easier to coordinate uh, activities that you have dispersed around the globe. This trade-off is, is, is key, and it's an empirical matter. Where firms land in that trade-off, do they collect all their activity in one place? Do they spread it around? Is actually an empirical matter and probably differs in different sectors of industry. So you get kind of um, horizontal specialisation that's driven by the specific development of, of skills and expertise in certain activity. I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um, in the auto industry, for example, things like the steering assemblies or the gears are now separate, specialised tasks which cluster in one place. And typically for a German car manufacturer, the place for those sub-assemblies would be Poland or the, or the Czech Republic. So you still get specialisation, but you get a kind of dispersed specialisation of um, certain activities taking place in certain countries or certain cities. And that's the kind of thing that I think Dyson was tapping into with his R&D engineers and the kind of specialisation that builds up in, in that case, Malaysia and Singapore. So there's that sort of horizontal specialisation in the global supply chains, and as well as, as that, what's called in the literature vertical specialisation that is driven by costs, because costs for some employers are definitely a factor. And then on top of that, you have to include the transport costs, because you then ship products back to the key markets in the, in the US and Europe. So it's all quite complex. You've got uh, technology forces that are pulling both ways, and um, <coughs> the wage costs and the capital costs layer onto that, and the transport costs layer onto that, and all the policy issues as well, because of, um, in different sectors, uh, trade restrictions. And it's a very complex optimization problem that businesses are facing. And as Baldwin says, 
Production sharing has linked cross-border flows of goods, investment services, know-how and people in novel and complicated ways. So this is the TUS approach. TUS occupation stages and product. Here's your product. You divide it into different stages made possible by the unbundling made possible by the technologies. So in the car example, uh, your steering assembly would be one stage, your brakes would be another stage, your bodywork would be another stage. And then these <coughs> can take place in different locations. So I've put my customs barrier in the middle of a different stage, stages there. The allocation of different tasks in that to different occupations is fluid. It can change quite quickly, and these technologies do change quite quickly. So to give an example, um, you might have in manufacturing occupations with labels like software engineer, uh, product designer, assembly line worker, foreman, but actually the tasks that are allocated to each of those occupations can change over time. So you might get an improvement in the software that means that an activity that was done by a software engineer can now be done by either um, a, a senior person on the factory floor or, or by an assembly line worker because it comes easier to do. And these technologies really are changing very rapidly. Uh, it's still in manufacturing. It's not just that computer-aided manufacturing has happened. It's still continuing and changing all the time. So these assignments are very fluid. And um, it does mean that although I think this approach m maps very well into how businesses think about their decisions, it's very hard to think about where you get the data to test this kind of model, um, with one, one exception. Even trade statistics on a value-added basis are, are, are relatively novel and not that disaggregated. So even looking at the basic supply chain unbundling is uh, in its infancy, I guess. And then on top of that, labour market statistics are... Um, are kind of rigid and they don't correspond at all to the fluidity of the, of the tasks that can be allocated to people with different job titles. And then, um, just to talk about how this changes, the technology will determine the, the, the balance I was talking about between the technolo technological forces for dispersion and agglomeration will determine how many stages the manufacturer decides to divide up the, pro the product up into. So, as coordination <coughs> technologies become cheaper and it becomes easier to manage these things remotely, you're more likely to get all the different stages. Uh, but then as the manufacturing kind of software <coughs> and reduces the gains to specialisation, that will tend to work the other way because it's much easier to allocate all of those tasks to people sitting in one place. I think these supply chains now characterise most of the economy. We're used to thinking about it in manufacturing, and especially in high-tech products, the iPhones, the computers, the cars, the Dyson, consumer electronics, but also in clothing and footwear, which, although you might think of that as um, it's all been shipped to China, actually China outsources a lot of the elements of making clothes to Cambodia or Vietnam, <coughs> so buttons are made in a different place, and um, uh, facings for shirts are made in a different place, and they're assembled. In services too, increasingly parts of services are being unbundled to be tradable. Legal services, um, the database searches that law firms have to do, will typically now be outsourced to India. And offshoring is obviously a kind of shadow migration. It's non-native-born labour being paid non-native wages, as opposed to non-native-born labour being paid native wages if they migrate, migrate into the country. So I think that the trade and tasks is a really useful framework 
thinking about how firms are doing this unbundling and which tasks they're assigning to which kind of labour and where those people are sitting. But what about the, this assignment of task question? And um, the paper here, uh, Darren Asimoglu and David Alter have a survey paper and I've cited Alter's recent overview paper as well here. And the key point, and it's quite hard to get your head around if you're uh, an old-style economist trained in old-style thinking, is that the, the identity of the input of the factor of production isn't in a fixed relationship to the production activity, that it, that it really can change. And the division of production into different tasks can change quite frequently. Uh, that will depend on the technology. It will depend on the prevailing factor prices. It depends on um, how much tacit knowledge is involved in the activity. Can it easily be codified or not? Can it easily be communicated to other people or not? Or do you have to have somebody there sitting with Nelly? And the assumption made is that technology augments high-skilled workers, that there's a process of continuing automation, um, but it substitutes for routine-skilled workers, which seems perfectly reasonable, reasonable assumption. And the wage that a company will want to pay to any input will pertain to its productivity in particular tasks, which is not the way we normally think about it. We normally think about productivity as related to the skills that a worker has in themselves. So they've um, had their education or their specific training, and we think of productivity as relating to that. But the question is, for the firm, is not how educated they are, how well-trained they are, how experienced they are. It's if you assign them to do this rather than that, what's their productivity in that task? And that's not at all how we've run productivity regressions. So it's a very different way of thinking about it. And it's it's really quite hard to stop thinking in terms of a static deployment of skills. The way people divide up the skills is normally um, there's capital, there's investment, and then you've got high, medium and low-skilled workers, which is the approach taken in these papers too. I'm not sure that's quite right. I'm not sure it's quite right to think about capital in a separate box, and it might be better to think about it as robots. So they're people with a specific kind of skill. They are very well able to do routine stuff, lots of calculation, they're very precise, they don't get bored, they've got certain characteristics. And then we think of skill as really about cognitive skills. Um, you know, have you got a degree, can you do analytical work, are you capable of abstract thinking? And there are many other dimensions to skills as well, and I think labour economists will need to think about those other dimensions in modern labour markets, um, particularly because the areas of the economy that are growing are caring activities, looking after the growing population of old people, creative <coughs> activities, performance matters, so cognitive skills just don't really have a bearing there. Nevertheless, I think this is a really uh, fruitful way, again, of thinking about the firm's production decision problems, so not the offshore, the trade decision problem, but just the sheer production problem. One of the points that needs to be borne in mind is that companies have really different starting points. It varies by sector, it varies by country, and the initial starting point and the prevailing wages will make a difference to what kind of choices they want to make at any given time. In particular, the choice about capital ratios, or robot ratios, and 
Um, this is a chart showing some of the main OECD countries and the very different levels of automation in factories already. I don't know if it's visible from uh, to all of you, but the obvious suspects, the highly industrialised countries, uh, Japan, Germany, have high levels of automation. In the car sector, actually, Italy is up there as well, which was a bit of a surprise. And according to the International Federation of Robotics, in the last year for which they published data in food processing, which is an important industry in the UK, 100 robots were sold or bought, compared to 270 in France, 308 in Spain, 442 in Germany, and 658 in Italy. So the trade body thinks the problem is that a lot of UK firms are small and they have a capital constraint, and also a kind of um, just risk-reward ratio in automating. So the UK in that industry, and evidently in lots of others too, has a very low initial level of automation, which is um, very relevant to thinking about how firms might respond to increased migration restrictions in various skills in future. So this, I think, is a really fruitful way of thinking about it, but there are some <coughs> really big challenges. Um, I started to talk about skills and uh, defining skills, mapping tasks onto skills, which we, we don't know how to do. There's the taxonomy of tasks in the first place, and I think one would need to think about each sector or each industry, um, about how companies are dividing up the different tasks. What determines the unbundling of the supply chain? What determines the units of that bundle? And then everything is endogenous, so you need to find a way of modelling this that's tractable, in which everything is related to everything else, and it's all endogenous, because, because that's life. And there's very little data. There's one database in the US called ONET, which I'm not familiar with, that does a skills categorisation of labour. And it divides them into routine, cognitive or manual, abstract, analytical, managerial or creative, non-routine manual requiring dexterity, flexibility or communication skills, and offshore ability, does the location affect the task performance? Um, I don't know enough about the skills literature to know whether that is um, a, a good kind of division or not. But anyway, um, we don't have data for any kind of skills division in a way that would be useful for this sort of modelling. And then the, the third leg is applying this task approach to the interactions between natives and immigrants, which is why we're all here today. And to state the obvious uh, from this paper, um, as long as any natives are available, fil uh, firms will have to use them. Um, so the possibility of using migrant labour um, is policy-related, and then the possibility of using offshore labour is both policy-related and technology-related. The impact on native employment and native wages in this kind of model is that it depends. And in the early days of the big waves of migration into the UK, we were surprised by how little impact those numbers seemed to have on labour market outcomes. And the level of employment you could understand because the economy was in a boom, so there are plenty of jobs available, but the, the absence of an impact on real wages was a real surprise to economists, thinking in the context of the traditional models, because you would expect a big increase in the supply of labour in those comparative static models to have put down the pressure on wages, and it was really hard to find that in the data. Now, these models can account for that, and it depends on the degree of substitution between the skill characteristics of migrant and native labour 
and also on the changes in the assignment of tasks and the division of production into stages in response to the influx of migrant labour. And the couple of uh, papers I've seen that have looked at this empirically in the US find out that that's exactly um, what seems to have happened. That the impact on wages depends on the skill characteristics of the different groups and on the, the tasks that they are assigned to perform <coughs> in response to supply and prevailing, um, prevailing wages. And if the substitution actually is that some tasks go to more highly skilled workers, you could even see real wages going up, not down, but up in, um, uh, in the sectors affected. And that seems to have happened in some of the US indus industry sectors. So um, the Asimoglu and Autor paper looks at US data and finds that the models do seem to account for the broad outlines of the data. So they can account for falling wages of low-skilled workers, increasing wages elsewhere in the income distribution, and employment up in that um, bimodal way that we've seen, that there's been an increase in employment in very low-skilled jobs and an increase in employment in high-skilled jobs and also the te technological diffusion and the offshoring that we've seen. So I think it's early days empirically, but the early empirical work does seem to support these kind of task-based models. So I like them. I like them because they seem to work empirically, and I like them because they absolutely accord with the way I've heard firms talking about how they make these decisions. But there are some challenges in this kind of research gender. One of them is that it is complicated joining up these different elements in a single optimization model. Um, I think it's tractable. I think it's tractable if you particularly if you think about computers as a type of labor. They think you know call them robots instead of migrants. Um, but that needs to be done. Then there's the data question, which I think is a big a big problem. Um, I'm not completely sure that the trade data that we have is adequate. And I certainly think the labour market data that we have isn't adequate. And of course, collecting this kind of data is very expensive. And I don't know that there are proposals to do anything of it. So meanwhile, I think one of the best approaches is going to be case studies. And I talked through the Dyson <coughs> example. It's a, quite a secretive company, and I would love to go and talk to you about it. But there are lots of others where proper business school-style case studies of how they make these decisions would, I think, offer real insight and a good test, actually, of whether the task-based approach does apply as much as my intuition tells me it does. And then I finally wanted to... Oh, one other problem is aggregation. So we um, tend to do this in a very aggregated way. You know, what's the effect of migration on the economy as a whole? You can't do this in an aggregated way. It will be absolutely different for all businesses and certainly for all sectors, depending on their initial rates of automation, on um, the initial assignments that they have, the particular strategic issues that they face. And if you aggregate that, the aggregate results are just going to depend on how the industry <coughs> changes over time. So if you're doing any aggregate work, you need to control for that. And I finally wanted to end with just a few thoughts about long run, the long run economics of migration. Um, well, we just don't know very much. One of the things that... Uh, the National Institute is looking at are the basic gains from trade. The quote up here says, migration is essentially a different way of doing trade, and we know that there are big gains to trade. It's a classic 
economic factor price equalisation gain, let's have a look at how big they might be in the case of migration. And their contention is that they are large and larger than the gains from trade. And then there's the kind of productivity effect that you get in growth, in growth models. Um, endogenous growth says uh, the long-run dynamics of growth depend on, on ideas, and you can embed that in patents and codified knowledge, or you can embed that in people. And the thing about migration is that it's people, and they come with different skills and ideas. And um, although in the very short run that might not look big, over time we know that small differences accumulate to very big differences in in living standards. So a small difference in the growth rate it, dynamically is really worth having and you get that from migration. <coughs> so I think um, the task-based approach feeds into the second of these that thinking about you're thinking about how do businesses overcome uh, different kinds of constraints and in, in, increase the efficiency of, of what they're doing and introducing the task-based models into into the long-run dynamics and into endogenous growth models, I think would be a really interesting way of lo looking at long-term growth potential too. So think about not just migration, but the whole bundle of migration and offshoring and technical change as part of the process of long-run growth. It's not just technical change or education. It's, it's that whole bundle of strategic decisions that businesses are taking. Um, so that's me done. You've all been very patient and nodded politely. Mm -hmm. Over to you now. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs>